European Heart Journal, Issue at a Glance, Volume 42, Issue 33. Focus Issue, Thrombosis and Antithrombotic Treatment, by Editor-in-Chief, Professor Filippo Crea, read to you by Morgan Bryan. Pulmonary Embolism, COVID and Bleeding Risk in Acute Coronary Syndromes, a focus issue on thrombosis and antithrombotic treatment. This issue opens with a joint special article entitled Clinician Wellbeing Addressing Global Needs for Improvements in the Healthcare Field. A joint opinion from the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, European Society of Cardiology, and World Health Federation. By Laxmi Mehta from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center in the United States. The authors note that as clinicians, we strive for improved health for our patients. Yet it is increasingly clear that our own well-being is an essential component of the quadruple aim to improve population health, enhance patient experience, reduce costs, and improve the work life of healthcare workers. Clinician well-being is described as experiencing satisfaction and engagement with work, while also having a feeling of professional fulfilment and a sense of meaning in work. Conversely, burnout is an occupational phenomenon that is defined as emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and a sense of low personal accomplishment in a perceived stressful work environment. Although burnout is a sign of clinical distress and a barrier to clinician well-being, its absence alone does not confer a state of well-being. Rather, burnout is one of the more extreme negative components along the spectrum of clinician well-being and can coexist with other common mental conditions, e.g. anxiety and depression. The issue continues with a focus on thrombosis and antithrombotic treatment. Infection by SARS-CoV-2 is mainly characterised by fever and respiratory symptoms, with dyspnea and lung infiltrates in more severe cases. Many patients also present a pro-coagulant state. In this context, patients with COVID-19 have an increased risk of developing clinically thrombotic complications like pulmonary embolism, or PE. Immunological and inflammatory-related phenomena may play a role in PE development. In a clinical research article entitled Pulmonary Embolism in Patients with COVID-19 Incidents, Risk Factors, Clinical Characteristics and Outcome Oscar Miro from the University of Barcelona in Spain and colleagues investigated the incidents, risk factors, clinical characteristics and outcomes of pulmonary embolism or PE in patients with COVID-19 attending emergency departments, or EDs, before hospitalization. The authors retrospectively reviewed all COVID patients diagnosed with PE in 62 Spanish EDs, 20% of Spanish EDs case group, during the first COVID outbreak. They formed control groups of COVID patients without PE and non-COVID patients with PE. Adjusted comparison for baseline characteristics, acute episode characteristics, and outcomes were made between cases and randomly selected controls, a one-to-one -one ratio. The authors identified 368 PE among 74,814 patients with COVID-19, or 4.92%. The standardised incidence of PE in the COVID population was 310 per 100,000 person years, significantly higher than that observed in the non-COVID population, 
which was 35 per 100,000 person years, resulting in an odds ratio, or OR, of 8.95. Several characteristics in COVID patients were independently associated with PE, the strongest being D-dimmer greater than 1,000 nanograms per milliliter, chest pain, and chronic heart failure, inverse association. COVID patients with PE differed from non-COVID patients with PE in 16 characteristics, most directly related to the COVID infection itself. Remarkably, D-dimmers greater than 1,000 nanograms per milliliter, leg swelling, stroke pain, and PE risk factors were significantly less present. PE in COVID patients affected smaller pulmonary arteries than in non-COVID patients, while right ventricular dysfunction was similar in both groups. In hospital mortality in COVID patients with PE, 16%, was like that of COVID patients without PE, 16.6%, OR equaling 0.96, but higher than that of non-COVID patients with PE, 6.5%, OR equaling 2.74. Adjustment for differences in baseline and acute episode characteristics and sensitivity analysis reported very similar associations. The authors conclude that PE in COVID patients at ED presentation is unusual, about 0.5%, but incidence is approximately ninefold higher than in the general non-COVID population. Moreover, risk factors and leg symptoms are less frequent, the D-dimmer increase is lower, and emboli involves smaller pulmonary arteries. While PE probably does not increment the mortality of COVID patients, the mortality is higher in COVID than in non-COVID patients with PE. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by John Eichelboom and Noel Kahn from the Canada and Hamilton General Hospital and McMaster's University in Ontario, Canada. The editorialists conclude that the data provided by Miro and colleagues lend further support to the importance of COVID-19 as a risk factor for venous thromboembolism, or VTE. At the same time, in the absence of high-quality evidence demonstrating a benefit of therapies that prevent VTE, their finding of a lack of association between PE and death in patients with COVID-19 should prompt further caution in the routine adoption of intensified anticoagulant strategies that can increase bleeding. By reducing blood flow to the lungs, large vessel thromboembolism has the potential to worsen respiratory function in patients with COVID-19. However, microvascular complications may be the most important thromboembolic complications in these patients, and it is unclear if these can be prevented with therapeutic anticoagulation. Consistent with this conclusion, randomized trials of intensified thromboprophylaxis using intermediate or therapeutic doses of anticoagulation have so far failed to demonstrate mortality benefits in a combined total of 4,470 hospitalised patients with COVID-19, despite apparently reducing major thrombosis, including VTE, in some trials. More than 70 randomised trials of antithrombotic therapy are currently ongoing in patients with COVID-19, and their successful completion should help to clarify this issue. International guidelines suggest home treatment in patients with low-risk acute pulmonary PE when home circumstances are adequate. However, current evidence is mainly based on cohort studies using different sets of eligibility criteria. 
Therefore, controversy persists about the optimal triaging strategy and eligibility criteria for home treatment. In a clinical research contribution entitled Triaging Acute Pulmonary Embolism for Home Treatment by Hestia or Simplified PESI Criteria, the Home PE Randomized Trial. Pierre-Marie Roy from the CHU Angers, Centre Hospitalier Universitaire d'Angers in France and colleagues, compared the Hestia rule versus the Simplified Pulmonary Embolism Severity Index, or SPESI, for triaging patients with acute pulmonary embolism, or PE, for home treatment. Normotensive patients with PE from 26 hospitals from France, Belgium, the Netherlands and Switzerland were randomised to either triaging with Hestia or SPESI. They were designated for home treatment if the triaging tool was negative and if the physician in charge, considering the patient's opinion, did not consider that hospitalisation was required. The main outcomes were the 30-day composite of recurrent venous thromboembolism, major bleeding or all-cause death, non-inferiority analysis with 2.5% absolute risk difference as margin, and the rate of patients discharged home within 24 hours after randomization. In the intention-to-treat analysis, 38% of Hestia patients were treated at home versus 37% of the S-PESI patients, with a 30-day composite outcome rate of 1.3% and 1.1% respectively. No recurrent or fatal PE occurred in either home treatment arm. The authors conclude that for triaging PE patients, the strategy based on the Hestia rule and the strategy based on S-PESI have similar safety and effectiveness. With either tool complemented by the overruling of the physician in charge, more than a third of patients can be treated at home with a low incidence of complications. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Cecilia Beccatini from the University of Perugia in Italy. The authors highlight that home PE is the largest randomised study assessing home management in patients with acute PE and its results can contribute to the progressive refinement in risk stratification and definition of management pathways for patients with acute PE. Home treatment seems feasible in about 30% of the normotensive patients with acute PE if adequate patient care is available as an outpatient service. Hestia and S-PESI are both able to identify a subgroup of patients with acute PE at low risk for complications the clinical judgment cannot be completely replaced. Spontaneous coronary artery dissection, or SCAD, is an increasingly diagnosed cause of acute coronary syndrome, or ACS, particularly in women. Its real incidence is probably even higher than reported. Indeed, it has been underdiagnosed for years due to the lack of modern diagnostic tools, e.g. intravascular imaging, and low awareness of the disease. Observations collected from contemporary SCAD case series have led to the general consensus that conservative therapy should be considered as a first-line approach in the absence of clinical high-risk features. Dissections can resolve spontaneously over time after conservative management due to recollection of the intimal flap or resorption of the intramural hematoma. The role of antiplatelet therapy in patients with SCAD undergoing initial conservative management is still a matter of debate, with theoretical arguments in favour and against its use. In a clinical research article entitled 
antiplatelet therapy in patients with conservatively managed spontaneous coronary artery dissection. Enrico Serrato et al. investigated the one-year Desezione Spontanee Coronariache or DISCO Multicenter International Registry. Patients were allocated to two groups according to single antiplatelet treatment or SAPT or double antiplatelet treatment or DAPT prescription. Primary endpoint was 12 months incidence of major cardiovascular events or MACE defined as the composite of all-cause death, non-fatal myocardial infarction or MI and any unplanned percutaneous coronary interventions or PCI. Out of 314 patients included in the DISCO registry, the authors investigated 199 patients in whom SCAD was managed conservatively. Most patients were female, 89%, presented with acute coronary syndrome, or ACS, 92%, and the mean age was 52.3 years. 67, or 33.7%, were given SAPT, whereas 132, 66.3%, received DAPT. Aspirin, plus either clopidogrel or ticagrelor, was prescribed in 63% and 37% of DAPT patients, respectively. Overall, a 14.6% MACE rate was observed at 12 months follow-up. Patients treated with DAPT had a significantly higher MACE rate than those with SAPT, 18.9% versus 6.0%, HR 2.62, P equaling 0.013, driven by an early excess of non-fatal MI or unplanned PCI. At multiple regression analysis, type 2A SCAD, OR 3.69, P equaling 0.007, and DAPT regimen, OR 4.54, P equaling 0.016, results independently associated with a higher risk of 12 months MACE. Serato and colleagues conclude that in this European registry, most patients with SCAD undergoing initial conservative management received DAPT. Yet, at one-year follow-up, DAPT, as compared to SAPT, was independently associated with a higher rate of adverse cardiovascular events. This manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Sharon Hayes from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, USA. Hayes concludes that although the relative rarity of SCAD makes the development and completion of randomized prospective trials more challenging, the author's counterintuitive findings should spur us all to collaborate and be creative in developing an evidence base upon which to inform our approach to early and long-term management of SCAD. Critically, we must continue to gather the evidence necessary so that we first do no harm. Bleeding risk associated to the potent antithrombotic drugs utilised in ACS is a topic of growing interest. Emerging evidence has linked cholesterol metabolism with platelet responsiveness. In another clinical research article entitled LDL Cholesterol Levels and In-Hospital Bleeding in Patients on High-Intensity Antithrombotic Therapy Findings from the CCC-ACS Project Shen Zhao from the Tianjin Medical University Hospital in China and colleagues sought to examine the dose-response relationship between admission low-density lipoprotein cholesterol or LDLC and major in-hospital bleeds in ACS patients. 
Among 42,378 ACS patients treated with percutaneous coronary intervention, or PCI, enrolled in 192 hospitals in the Improving Care for Cardiovascular Disease in the China ACS project from 2014 to 2019, a total of 615 major bleeds, 218 ischemic events and 337 deaths were recorded. After controlling for baseline variables, a non-linear relationship was observed for major bleeds, with the higher risk at lower LDLC levels. A threshold value of LDLC greater than 70 mg per deciliter was associated with an increased risk for major bleeds, adjusted odds ratio 1.49, 95% confidence interval 1.21 to 1.84 in multivariable adjusted logistic regression models and in propensity score-matched cohorts. The results were consistent in the multiple sensitivity analyses. Among ticagrelor-treated patients, the LDLC threshold for increased bleeding risk was observed at less than 88 mg per deciliter, whereas for clopidrogrel-treated patients, the threshold was less than 54 mg per deciliter. Across a full spectrum of LDLC levels, the treatment effect size associated with ticagrelor versus clopidrogrel on major bleeds favoured clopidrogrel at lower LDLC levels, but no difference at higher LDLC levels. The authors conclude that in a nationwide ACS registry, a non-linear association is identified between admission LDLC levels and major in-hospital bleeds following PCI with the higher risk at lower levels. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Diana Gorog from the Imperial College London in the United Kingdom and colleagues. The authors note that while the magnitude of benefit of LDLC reduction in patients with ACS undergoing PCI should trump concerns over lipid-lowering strategies, the average in-hospital TIMI major bleeding rates were below 1.5 and 2% in the lowest LDLC categories, Low LDLC on admission among ACS patients undergoing PCI may be a marker of increased susceptibility to bleeding during intensive antithrombotic therapy. Thus, every effort should be made to reduce the risk of bleeding, including the use of gastrointestinal prophylaxis, radial rather than femoral artery access, good blood pressure control, anticoagulant or parenteral antiplatelet dosing adjusted to weight and renal function, and careful choice of antithrombotic drugs. As noted previously, patients with acute pulmonary embolism, or PE, at low risk for short-term death are candidates for home treatment or short hospital stay. In a meta-analysis article, Right ventricular assessment in patients with pulmonary embolism at low risk for death based on clinical models. An individual patient data meta-analysis. Cecilia Beccatini from the University of Perugia in Italy and colleagues aim to determine whether the assessment for right ventricular dysfunction or RVD or elevated BNP stroke NT proBNP improves identification of low-risk patients over clinical models alone. Individual patient data meta-analysis of studies assessing the relationship between RVD or elevated troponin and short-term mortality in patients with acute PE at low risk for death based 
on clinical models. Pulmonary Embolism Severity Index, or PESI, Simplified PESI or SPESI, or HESTIA. The primary study outcome was short-term death, defined as death occurring in hospital or within 30 days. Individual data of 5,010 low-risk patients from 18 studies were pooled. Short-term mortality was 0.7%. RVD at echocardiography, computed tomography, or BNP stroke NT pro-BNP, was significantly associated with increased risk for short-term death. 1.5% versus 0.3% OR 4.81. Death within three months, 1.6% versus 0.4% OR 4.03. And PE-related death, 1.1% versus 0.04% OR 22.9. The authors conclude that RVD should be considered to improve identification of low-risk PE patients. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Marc Humbert from the Université Paris-Saclay in France. Humbert and colleagues conclude that Beccatini and colleagues provide more evidence to solve a frequently encountered clinical dilemma. A patient with acute PE classified as being low-risk for death but with abnormal cardiac biomarkers or morphological right ventricular findings, should be managed as an intermediate-risk PE patient, as suggested by the most recent update of the ESC guidelines. The prognosis of low-risk patients with no cardiac involvement is excellent, which should allow outpatient management to be considered as frequently as possible, subject to a well-organised care pathway. The issue is also complemented by two discussion forum contributions. In a commentary entitled Single Antiplatelet Therapy After TAVI Clarity on Existing Data, George Dangas from the ICANN School of Medicine in Mount Sinai in New York, New York State, USA, and colleagues comment on the recent publication Management of Antithrombotic Therapy in Patients Undergoing Transcatheter Aortic Valve Implantation a consensus document of the ESC Working Group on Thrombosis and the European Association of Percutaneous Cardiovascular Interventions, or EAPCI, in collaboration with the ESC Council on Valvular Heart Disease, by Yuri N. Temberg from the Cardiovascular Research Institute Maastricht, or CARIM, in Maastricht in the Netherlands and colleagues. Temberg et al. respond in a separate comment. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will find the interest of its listeners.